All right, everyone, welcome to another episode of the Twimmel AI podcast. I am your host, Sam Charrington, and today I'm joined by Demetrius Zermas. Demetrius is a principal scientist at Centera. Before we get into today's conversation, please take a moment and head over to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your listening platform of choice and subscribe, review, and leave us a five-star rating if you enjoy the show. Demetrius, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Sam. Thank you for having me. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. We'll be chatting a bit about data-centric AI and in particular, how it applies to your work in precision agriculture. But before we get there, let's start like we usually do with a little bit of background. How'd you get started in ML and AI? That's a good question. Let's see. I'm originally from Greece and when I was Growing up, I really wanted to work with robotics. And then as I managed to get accepted for a PhD program in the United States, I was really hoping to do robotics. But the lab I joined was doing both robotics and AI. And I was drawn to AI more. So then that sort of changed my plans or how I was viewing myself or my future self. And that's essentially started a trajectory that led me to where I'm here today. Awesome. Tell us a little bit about Centera. Centera is a software and hardware company specializing in precision agriculture. We are building tools to assist agronomists and assist enterprises that work in the business of precision agriculture or the business of agriculture Uh, with making decisions for their crops during the growing season. Awesome. And what kind of tools in particular? What do those tools look like? Mm -hmm. So starting from the hardware, we are building cameras that can be mounted on small drones. We also build a drone that has a fixed-wing airplane that you can launch by hand. And then these are paired nicely with uh, a suite of uh, software and analytics solutions. So we have a platform where you can upload your data and then view the results after the analysis is done. And as well as all the, we also create all the analysis on the images we collect. And this can be counting how many plants have emerged. And that way you can, or the agronomist can decide whether the seed he planted was is doing well or not, and whether he need to replant or or not, as well as figuring out the general vigor and health of the crop they're growing throughout the year. Okay. And why build all of these components? Like, why build a separate drone and a separate camera as opposed to the software part that's kind of directly impacting the, the agronomist? There is a continuous hunger for improvement of productivity in the precision agriculture and the industry in general. They want to be flying more acres or capturing data for more acres in the in a smaller amount of time. So we figured that by combining a fixed wing drone that can fly for about an hour, we can cover or the agronomists can cover much more ground than whatever was available in the market. We are, of course, supporting some well-known drone companies. I'm not going to mention any (laughs) names because as long as they create a capture images that are up to some specifications, then, of course, the algorithm can use them. 
Okay. How long have, have you been in the company and what stage was the company at with regard to using ML and AI when you joined? Mm-hmm. I was informed that I recently I concluded the fourth year of okay. joining Centera. <laughs> so yeah, time flies for sure. And when we started or when I started the company, there was barely any analytics available. We had some simple plant counting algorithm that was sort of struggling to expand and be able to to be used for different types of plants. And that was something that the company leadership wanted to fix. We wanted to invest majorly at the analysis of the images we're capturing because that was a, a unique strength for the company, the ability to be able to both capture the data and process them. And that was the beginning. was, I think, the first employee of the data analytics group. Nice, nice. Is plant counting still one of the major challenges that you're working on? And more broadly, what are some of the various ways that you do use machine learning there? Yes, plant counting is still something important and something that we're focusing on. And by no means it has been completely solved. There are always new challenges, new corner cases that people are asking us if we can support this and that. But apart from plant counting, we are doing other types of counting. We're counting tassels. Towards the end of the growing season, we're counting some value crops, uh, some permanent crops like trees, value crops like uh, lettuce, for example. The way I like to separate the different problems we're addressing is we like to count things. Mm-hmm. We like to detect areas of images that ha- that show some particular texture, some particular pattern. We're trying to classify images into different classes that show some specific characteristics. And we also want to to be able to detect anomalies, things that should not be there, like weeds, for example, or uh, a plant that is of the correct species but is the wrong hybrid. Like, for example, a corn seed that was left there from a previous year and didn't germinate previous years, Mm -hmm. germinated by accident when it shouldn't. So these types of problems, it's a broad spectrum, I would say. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned that when you joined and early on in the company's evolution of using ML and analytics, you know, one of these first problems was the counting problem. Forget the exact words you used, but it sounded like there were some barely working algorithms at first. You know, let's kind of dig into that evolution. What were you using at first and what were some of the challenges that you were running into? Mm hmm. Yeah, that, that was sort of a, the standard tale of how we are moving computer vision technology moves from the classical computer vision to deep learning and the merits of deep learning and how it overtakes everything. The challenges, as everybody who's familiar with the old computer vision can tell you, is that you cannot create an algorithm that can be completely autonomous in environment in an environment that you cannot control. Uh, the light conditions change, a cloud passes over the field when you're capturing an image, different soil types in different regions of the country or different regions of the world. Everything plays a role into trying to set some parameters, some thresholds in achieving your result, your final result. And that essentially forced us to start creating very complicated algorithmic pipelines 
at some point it was almost unsustainable to to be able to update them or verify that they're working, test them, etc. Then the the next four years ago, deep learning was the hype. We decided to start looking at some ways of utilizing deep learning to do counting uh, to solve that problem. And even from the very few initial experiments, the, the results were substantial. So we were seeing much, much better results than computer vision. And that was essentially the sign telling us that as much as you love classical computer vision, because that was <laughs> what we were taught, it's time to change, time to update and embrace machine learning, deep learning. And that's essentially what we are doing since then. Thinking about this move into deep learning type of an approach, just given the company's business, which you described earlier, you have these drones, you have these camera, your drones can fly longer than any other drones, should be easy, right? You've got lots and lots of images. Is that the case? Yes and no. <laughs> <laughs> that's a trick question for the audience because that's what we're talking about, right? <laughs> yes, yes, right. Having uh, Embracing the deep learning approach for sure solve some of the problems of having variability in the images we capture, for sure. But then again, on the other hand, one of the main problems of the successful deep learning product is that 80% of the solution is having data, having good annotations, having a variety of annotations from different scenes, which essentially means that you have to take a step back before you send any images to be annotated and make a decision on whether this image is going to add new information to your training or if it's going to saturate essentially or overtrain on things that you already know, that you already have captured in your data set. Mm-hmm. So the problem of selecting which images are the ones that need to be annotated and trained arose. And uh, that's another significant hurdle we need to overcome. And so you mentioned that one of the challenges with classical computer vision techniques was you had to create this really complicated algorithmic pipeline to deal with all of the variability that you were seeing in your images and in the the cornfields and deep learning did help with that, but there was still an aspect of variability that was problematic for you? Yes, and that had mostly to do with corner cases. After you go through the the initial excitement of having something that works much better, You start actually testing and looking at corner cases and making sure that it works for every on every occasion. And what we found was that there were, of course, areas where we could improve. We always need to detect smaller plants, for example, as well as being able to detect different and, and isolate different plants when, when they are overlapping. I don't know if you have ever visited a cornfield after the first month, month and a half, depending on the weather, it is very hard to even walk between the rows. 
can yeah. imagine trying to identify which plant is which one plant is which and separate them between their leaves. But at the same time, the the ability to be able to do this separation is important as it can reveal a lot of information to both people that are growing corn in a production setting as well as the people that are growing for seed production. So the people that are growing the corn that will be planted next year. So you've got all these factors that are introducing variability into your data set. And you mentioned you've got these corner cases that you're trying to be able to account for. You've got this real world problem that you're trying to solve and you can't solve it for the perfect case. What's the relationship between the variability and the corner cases, I guess, in your situation? Yes. That's a good question. The first thing that comes to mind is the the size of the database. This is a, a weird problem in the sense that we have millions of images. So in that sense, we are lucky. But at the same time, there's an imbalance in the data. And the corner case is something that happens that does not happen frequently. So although we have a sea of data Identifying images that have good examples of the corner cases is, is tough. So I think that is the challenge. How do you search through your data space, identifying corner cases, identifying images that are outliers, mm-hmm. and then include them in a somewhat meaningful way in your main training data set because there is always the fear or the danger of skewing your data one direction or the other. Of course, it requires a lot of testing to figure out if you're doing the right thing, but you need to start somewhere and trying to solve the problem of, I need some automated way to tell me which images are unique or interesting. I think the first step. So you have the millions of images. These are kind of raw images, so to speak, off of the camera. And your first step in curating this data set is, well, probably first you just took a bunch of images and kind of proved to yourself that deep learning would work. But then the next step is, okay, how do we curate a data set that really works for all the cases that you need to consider? And in order to do that, you couldn't manually go through millions of images to identify. You'd essentially have to label all of your images to identify the ones that were useful, and that is costly and expensive. And so you did what? We tried to approach it in a couple of ways. The the first one and more simpler in my mind is uh, let's try and train a network and randomly pick images from different data sets and see what the performance is. So essentially downsizing your these millions of images to a few thousands of images by randomly sampling. So before we even annotate, because annotation is costly, let's do inference and see, do we get good results or not? If we don't get good results, then the the network is challenged. So we we should probably use these images, the challenging images in the data set. Just to make sure I understand that, you've got, I think the kind of theory is you've got these different data sets that represent kind of in a discrete way, some of the variability that you see in the wild. So what if we mm-hmm. sample kind of randomly from across these data sets that in aggregate, we're still representing the variability that we see in the wild. 
Uh, And so let's train a network on that and see if that works. Yes, but not necessarily. Before you even train, let's see how the current network Mm. performs on these images across the spectrum. And the sort of nice thing is that there is variability in this problem, but there is not unlimited variability. I mean, at some point you have exhausted all of the different soil types you would encounter. You have exhausted, you know, flying uh, in the morning at the middle of the day or in the evening mm-hmm. or later in the day. So there are a few components that create, you know, if you combine them, create something unique, but they are, they are finite. So it's through this uh, sort of brute force method, you can get a good sense of what you ha- you're dealing with. Yeah, but, but then after doing this sort of manual labor for a few images, then, you know, next year comes, <laughs> we're getting <laughs> two times more images than, than the previous one. And then you start asking yourself if you have actually captured all the changes that you could uh, actually see in the field. And if that statement holds, then you're right, you, we're done. But if it doesn't, and how do I know if it doesn't? The next step was to do something a little bit more sophisticated, let's say. And that's when I started reading about zero-shot learning and clustering without uh, supervision. I thought that this is probably a good area to try and implement. And that would probably be a, an adequate solution, or at least a more sophisticated solution that would uh, ease my anxiety of whether I captured <laughs> enough data or not. And so what does a zero-shot learning-based approach look like in your scenario? In my case, essentially, we're talking about finding uh, visual similarities between images. Mm -hmm. And essentially, this happens by downsizing significantly uh, the images we capture. I should have mentioned this before, but one of the unique properties of of the problem is that the images we capture are at least 3,000 by 4,000 pixels. So we're we're talking about... Mm. Uh, very high definition images. Some of them are also wide field of view. You cannot process, we cannot feed uh, an image like that uh, in a normal network. So downsizing significantly to something that can be handled is step number one. And then after this downsizing, passing it through a network that acts like as a sort of autoencoder, essentially takes the image, the two-dimensional image, and finds a representation and a higher dimensional space. And by doing so, it allows the, the algorithm itself to find which images are close by in that higher dimensional space, and then clusters them together. And then, you know, through this embedding space, essentially, which is this higher dimensional one, you can sort of find similarities between images. And what you will find may surprise you. Because what are similar images for the algorithm? For us, it may be some uniformity in the soil. The first time we tried this, the the algorithm just grouped the images based on the direction of the row. Not very (laughs) useful. (laughs) Mm -hmm. How do you adjust for that? Like, how do you iterate towards an algorithm that works? So this happens uh, with uh, augmentations, So what the algorithms do is that they do not have explicit constraints between images that should look alike. It's completely unsupervised. So what they do is that they take an image, they apply some augmentations, and then they treat the augmented image 
and the original image as similar. So the network is being trained through this process of taking an image, augmenting it, and then projecting it, projecting both of them in this embedding space. These two should be very close in the embedding space because they come from the same image. So essentially, in order to overcome your issues of uh, unwanted clustering or unwanted similarity, essentially you are augmenting so that the network learns that it doesn't matter what direction the rows are with random rotations, for example. So the augmentation you can use is the random rotation. This means that the network learns now that the image where the rows are perpendicular is very similar with the image where the rows are horizontal dismisses this characteristic of the image and looks for something else. And I'm imagining that, and you alluded to this earlier, the only way you really figure out what is happening is you have to look at the results and spend a lot of time and just kind of intuit what the network is trying to do. Right. And by the way, this is one of the reasons why I really like algorithmic development in computer vision because you can see the result. So you know if you're doing something wrong. Yes, it it requires a lot of verification and reviewing, but then it is possible to get the images from the embedding space down into 2D or you have the connection. Essentially, you know that this image is that one in the embedding space. You can see it, you can key means or clustering, you can find which are the closest neighbors and uh, you know, through that essentially move forward with making informed decisions of whether what you're trying to do works or not. Mm-hmm. And do you start with some smaller set of images that you know how they relate and then look and see if they relate in the, the space or? Yes, definitely. I mean, it's like uh, this uh, unit testing sort of attitude towards the data. As I mentioned, we, you know, having millions of images, it doesn't allow you to nearly-willy just start processing gigabytes of data. And since most of the processing, if not all of the processing, is done on the cloud, you can imagine the hefty price we'll have to pay. Talk a little bit about the results you saw with the zero-shot approach. How did it work out for you? We're still in the testing phase, right? So we're working with smaller data. Unfortunately, or I don't know if I should say unfortunately, but the crop season started sometime in May. And that means for us, stop whatever you do and make sure that that the product works. Through some testing, it seems to be working well. Some networks work better than others, of course. We have been able to identify what we are looking for, which is that we can decrease the number of images that express some unique characteristics by about 40%, which is great because this means that from instead of annotating 100 images, now we can annotate 60. Since we're going through a process of somewhat cumbersome and elaborate process of annotation where each image is seen by two people at least, and then we need to run some comparisons and figure out if there's an agreement score in high enough or not, and then correct the annotations, that's a huge time saver. Yeah, so that's the update. Mm-hmm. Maybe should have raised this as a point more directly earlier on, but the in the context of deep learning, we talk and we throw around this idea of collect more data, collect more data, collect more data, but really your ultimate goal here. Well, your ultimate goal is to produce a better product, but your intermediate goal was not to collect more data. It was to 
identify less data or the right data to annotate so that you wouldn't get eaten, eaten alive by annotation costs. That is very true, yes. Um, and I think that we probably see that this is a direction most people are heading, even in recent research. That's probably a, a narrative that people are trying to push. And I think it actually makes sense. The fortunate thing about this particular problem, the counting, the plant counting, is that we are receiving the data whether we want it or not because people are flying, <laughs> collect data for their own purposes, so they're there. So why not take advantage of it? But if you think of how we will be approaching new products, then that's a game changer because a new customer comes in and they want to count something, something new, potatoes, <laughs> I don't know, just okay. making things up. And the first thing people are asking me is, how many images do you want? Mm-hmm. I think after asking me so many times already, we have created some common understanding where they know not to ask me this question. Because my answer is always, I don't want more images. I want a variety of images. So Mm. it's better if you go to 10 different fields in 10 different states and capture two images from each than giving me 1,000 images from two neighboring fields, for example. And are those those specific numbers kind of arbitrary numbers to prove your point or is that kind of the order of magnitude that you actually require i would say the actual order mind you would be around 100 images that's the typical because again since they are quite large the images are quite large you can imagine to train the network you have to crop them down Mm -hmm. so out of one image you can generate 40 smaller ones that will actually go into training. So I think it's a a substantial number and it always depends on the problem we're trying to solve. But I think it's an indicative number. Just to kind of play back, when we think about deep learning, like that's an astonishingly small number, what we're doing with 100 images across some representative number of fields and what you're creating with that is this embedding space that you can then use to create automatically more balanced data set, which will probably consist of a lot more images. Is that right? Yeah, I probably didn't explain this adequately. So the reason why this helps a lot with the creation of new products is that I can quickly identify how many more images or in which locations or what type of images we would like to collect more of. So I may get these 100 images, and then through this uh, zero-shot learning, we have identified a few different clusters that we expect, different light conditions, different soil types, whether the image is at the edge of the field or not. So these are things that we expect. So essentially, by doing this clustering, I know where I am short, what type of image I am short of. So this is a, a sort of the first iteration. I get 100 images identify what kind of images I want more of, and then I send them back out to collect more of that type. Oh, okay. So it's not even just reducing labeling costs. Here we're talking about the cost of sending someone to a field and flying a plane or a drone and the whole end-to-end data collection costs, which I'm imagining is significantly more even. Yes, it, it can be, especially people are busy during the growing season. So, it, you know, I have to be very respectful of their time when I'm asking you data. And in previous years, it was more of a gut feeling. 
we have seen so many images, we have seen what works or what and, and what doesn't work. But now it's more specific, more targeted. I want this fly at this time, try to get images where the day is not cloudy. So it gives you a lot of space to plan. So this last example you talked through is still a counting type of a problem. Do you see the approach applying to a broader set of projects? Yes, uh, for sure. The next place I would like to spend more time is the weed detection. And that is also something that is significant for the industry. And it's also a problem where the annotation is much more costly. You can imagine what, when we're counting things, you're requesting a human annotator to click on the object you want to count. For weeds, especially when you have patches of weed, we're talking about drawing polygons. Mm-hmm. And the polygons are a series of clicks. And that requires you know, more concentration from the annotator because there may be small weeds. We don't want to miss those. Polygons are generally more time-consuming than just clicking and then going to the next one. So I think it will be a time-saver for annotations there too. Mm -hmm. And maybe one last question. More broadly, has what you've learned, this project and this approach, changed how you think about deep learning problems and applying deep learning within your space? Previously, I thought that 80% of the solution is data. Now I think 90% of the solution is data. Uh (laughs) (laughs) This has induced some changes or demanded some changes in how we architect the deep learning framework we're building. These are more technical changes, essentially. Mm -hmm. What's an example? So we have a data pipeline that goes from fetching data from our main database to reviewing the selection of images we're doing, to sending them to a human, to a couple of human annotators, and then compare their annotations and do some quality control. So initially, the way we were doing the fetch data from the main database was either random or I'm going to select a few images and then say, this image has weeds in it, this image has different type of soil, this image is cloudy, etc. Now things are more automated which means that we can process, we can make this type of decision in season. Since it's automated, we can essentially assess the images we collect Monday to Friday. We can make the assessment over the weekend, and then on Monday we can start training a new network if there are any new data we want to include. As opposed to before that, since it was a human-intense process, we had to wait until the end of the growing season where everybody was relaxed and free, and then we could do this type of data discovery. So, yeah, this, uh, there, there are some small changes, essentially, but are uh, additional features that we couldn't do before. Awesome, awesome. Well, it sounds like a very exciting project and journey, and I'm super appreciative of you jumping on and sharing a bit about what you've accomplished, Demetrius. Thank you very much, Sam. Thank you for for having me, for reaching out. I hope my experiences help others to achieve their goals. Awesome. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. Bye. All right, everyone. That's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit twimmelai.com. Of course, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening. 
and catch you next time.